3: is
1: that that's the second time it's gone off they never go home they never go home they never go home those, those, those
5: boys. and i said i want to win the league but i want to
4: win it better you can understand that can't yes good luck so he's almost like having a second captain in the team <laughs> second captain first captain whatever
3: it's the Irish Times Second Cabin's podcast. Oh, my debit here with Kieran Murphy. Hello there, all. Hi, Kieran, i I'm Ken Early. Hi, Owen. Hello, Ciarán. Hello, guys. Hello, Ken. If you didn't get to see Leinster's scrappy win at the Ospreys on Saturday night, here's a smattering of quotes just from a couple of match reports, which should bring you up to speed. John O'Sullivan in the Irish Times today refers to a deep-seated frustration among supporters and angst in watching Leinster fumble about before securing an 18-12 victory. Brendan Fanning in the Sunday Independent ends his article with, well, I'll just give you the last few words, and then, thankfully, It was over said uh, Fanning so you get the idea <laughs> not, it was a truly awful game of rugby not the not, not the prettiest game of rugby on the Imerf. No. and uh, the question is is it fair for Leinster supporters to expect their team to add a certain style to the substance of their victories we've got Jerry Thorny and Dennis Hickey calling at the studio to answer that one elsewhere in the Sunday Indo Yesterday Stephen Hunt I don't know if you read this one uh, he's quite new to the sports writing game, as Stephen Hunt, but he's experienced his first, possibly the first of many, uh, backlashes from intercounty GA players. Ah, uh, they're the Oscars in uh, our game, <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course, yeah. Uh,
2: you're no one if you haven't uh, experienced a GA intercounty footballer backlash. Now, bearing in mind, Ken, have you you haven't have you?
4: No, because ah, um, uh, oh, but I
2: mean, don't don't even t- don't even say what you well I think you were going to say there. What do you think I was going to say? Well, I only write about soccer, so.
4: I was actually that's,
2: gonna, the le- that's the least
4: I was actually going to say I've got a lot of respect for what they do
3: <laughs> well, Stephen Hunt has a lot of respect for what they do as he, yeah. as he outlines himself here and as we saw when we had him on TV a few weeks back he had quite a sparkling underage hurling career but he says I heard Joe Brody a couple of weeks ago saying that soccer players weren't role models I think footballers can be role models even if one or two let people down but I get the impression with Joe that he feels we lack the spirit of the true Gales he admires so much. As somebody who grew up with the GAA, I can tell you that as much as I love the games, if G A players tried to live at the level of commitment shown by a professional footballer, they wouldn't know what hit them. It, I think it's the they wouldn't know what hit them line that has uh, hit a couple of the G A guys. Balls E collated a few quotes there today from the likes of Dick Clerkin. Someone should remind Alan Stephen Lester. Hunt
2: in today's at- S- Sunday Indoor that when he's so bu- busy resting, we're busy working.
3: <laughs> Philip Jordan, Alan Nester, <laughs> good, good few you, these guys. Colin Boyle. Colin
2: Boyle. So Stephen Hunt reckons GA players wouldn't have the mental strength for soccer because it's all about training and resting. Hashtag what a clown. <laughs> <laughs> hashtag what a clown. I'm going to get on the what a clown hashtag and see what uh, pearls lie underneath
4: there.
3: What
2: are yeah. you
4: thinking? Uh, well, I think, I mean, obviously I agree with Stephen Hunt. About? Uh, Joe Broly. Uh, uh, not thinking that football players have the spirit of the true Gael, which I, which is definitely something Joe Brody thinks. I've read, I don't know how many times Joe Brody talking about how football players are unworthy of respect. You know, we too many people in this country go around worshipping at the idol. These false gods, idols with feet of clay, uh, tattooed, uh, preening, hairstyles, staring at themselves in the mirror. That's what Joe Roddy... T- it's like a constant theme of his. That's what he's it talking is, about all the time. It is a big theme. So I think Stephen team, Hunt was just saying, you know, let's back up a little bit here and remember that this is a serious, uh, high-level, professional sport, right? Mm-hmm. And the people who are doing it are high-level athletes. So let's... Let's just back up a little bit here. Now I know in this country there's, there's a culture of admiring the the self sacrifice and warrior mentality and sort of training arms race uh, among GAA players. Yeah. But let's face it, you know you're not there's there's nothing like the level of uh, of you know the sort of elite professionals well, that see, are playing. Well, life isn't
3: too hard. I mean, you, essentially what you do is you play football. Mm-hmm. You go you go to your club, you play a bit of football, you go home, you sit down. Yeah. Well, then I'm, I'm that, sure takes, I'm, that takes discipline. I'm sure GA players would have the discipline to do that—to just to go down, relax. Would they?
4: Back. Would they? Would they not be out? Would they not be out uh, running hard, running laps? Uh, whatever, whatever it is, I mean, life in life in Ireland, you know, you mm. got a—it's a social thing, isn't it? You know? You, I mean, you could be there behind your twitching curtains, peeking, yeah. out at, peeking out at life in the town, or you could go out there and be an active participant in that life. I mean, this is another thing of Joe Brawley, it's another theme of Joe Brawley's, you know, uh, Irish people prostrating themselves before, uh, again, foreign, the idols foreign of foreign, yeah, foreign corporations that don't care about them, when in fact, real sportsmen go down to the local JA club and participate in the life of their community they're woven into the very fabric of their community now how can you be woven into the fabric of your community if you're just sitting there watching a 60 inch plasma all day because you're wrestling you can't As a GEA player, you'd be reneging on your responsibilities. You have to be out there training the young teams, organizing fundraisers, maybe running for the local council. Mm -hmm. You know, all of these things are... are These are things that are going to take you out of that resting zone, Mm -hmm. which the true professional athlete, who is selfish... He's a professional. He's doing it for the money. He works for a corporation. He doesn't care about his community. He doesn't even live in the community he grew up in. He's left it behind in order that he can make money and play at the top level of his sport. He doesn't care about any of that stuff. So he can sit there resting. That's fine. But I don't see how GAA players can do this. I'm same. not
3: sure if it's got that much fun being friends with a professional football player, just judging by Stephen by here. Uh, it says a couple of weeks ago, I drove from Ipswich to meet a friend at the airport hotel in Stansted. As we were leaving later that day, I said to him, I shouldn't really have made the 45 minute journey as it was important that I rested. <laughs> Stephen Sits there, meets his mate for a coffee. His his friends only in town briefly, so he says, oh, call hey, "I'll call it. I meet up with you."
2: Stephen, thanks so much for seeing yeah, you. Yeah, cra- see great. S- Stephen was
3: yeah, just well. bristling, sitting there in a really yeah, bad mood. Well. I shouldn't be here.
4: That's the way that would also. I mean, sure, I'm sure. To be honest, a lot of GA players are like that, you know. I mean, in the summer, you know, barbecue time, and they're sitting there drinking uh, water, you know. A lot of weddings. Ah, uh, would you never have a now glass of wine?
3: No. Butler.
2: No, I've got a championship game in six
3: weeks' yeah, time. And then there. another one in yeah. another six weeks' yeah. time.
4: Sitting there no, making no, everyone I, else feel bad.
3: I just got to go
2: training tonight, and then I've got 15 more training sessions before my next game, and then we've got a further 30 training sessions set before our next game of football. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah it's, not, it's not a very nice life, Ken. I mean, you're having a pop there and all the rest, but, I mean, yeah. it's not a very nice existence Murph, to be an county footballer.
3: You've been to the Galway races? Uh,
2: yes, uh...
3: Only once Owen, which, on which
2: uh, on. which is kind of strange, I know because I was in from Galway, went to college in Galway, but I went there a couple of years ago, and uh, for two nights, Tuesday night and a Wednesday night, and then I returned, I left for Dublin uh, as Ladies' Day was beginning, so I, I, I put it to you
3: that two nights of the Galway races is probably enough. You probably get oh, the plenty, plenty <laughs> on.
2: Uh, I think you've you you one managed, night,
3: one night too long. Maybe, you managed to day?
2: sample all of the all of the meats of the Galway races stew with uh two nights. For those, I mean, there are those, of course, who go for the seven nights. Um, those warriors, noble warriors, noble warriors, no doubt woven into the very fabric of their Galway <sighs> communities. Yeah. Uh, I would have thought, but no, I, 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 two days would be plenty. On the plenty. reason
3: I asked Luke McManus is a director who we've spoken to about a couple of excellent racing documentaries in the recent past. Jump Boys about Ireland's top jump jockeys and Arkle. We're going to talk to him about his latest program today, which surrounds the the Galway races. John Maloney is racecourse manager there, Ballybrit. Here's just a clip of him speaking about the slightly different atmosphere around it now compared to the heady days in the middle of the last decade.
2: There's I think five heli uh, pads there in that enclosed area. Uh, we had 340 landings there on a Thursday in I think about 2006 or seven. So it was the busiest heliport in Europe ever. I think this year we're talking about maybe five or six helicopters max. So there's a change to bicycles now rather people seems to be
3: cycling here now again. They're back to what they were doing 50 years ago. So we'll know the good times are back when we're up to around 50 to 60 helicopter landings mm. in It Galway was, the it was the
2: a little like Apocalypse Now That <laughs> <When> the sky <laughs> that sounds crazy. swarms
4: with helicopters I'll tell you now you see? Yeah. I, mean, I remember being at a wedding around then when there was a helicopter At the wedding? Yeah, the, the, the helicopter came and picked them up from the church and brought them to the reception Really? I kid you not Yeah It was
2: That is kind of mental it was, it, like absolutely, a, that, it was absolutely insane. I know, I know one or two documentaries, uh, panel discussion shows and newspaper articles have been written about how mental the last decade was. But why not, can we, should we just leave the sport aside and talk about that for the next 45 minutes? <laughs> We're
3: going to speak to Luke McManus okay, about Goway in a little while. That's a, a documentary on TG Carr at the moment, but we'll give you more details on that later on. Jerry Thornley and Dennis Hickey have popped into the studio. And thanks a million for coming in. Hello. Oh, You didn't sound too excited at <laughs> the start there. Hopefully, let's oh, the go first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We we'll just leave it to each other for the whole thing. Oh, okay, after the weekends, uh, international results England and Wales winning. It looks pretty decent for the European team. Six wins for six nation sides as against eight defeats. Is this an, an indication of anything coming into World Cup year or just a few results going a certain way, Jerry?
5: Um, I don't think the gap was ever that huge, really. I think that there were a lot of. Conditions in favour of those Six Nations teams that, of course, should be there each year. All Blacks still unbeatable, just about, but although the games were close with them. Um, South Africa trying a few things. Australia trying a few things. 15 tests in the last six months under a new coaching regime. They, As I said about Ireland before in this window, if they weren't going to beat South Africa and Australia at home now, when were they going to do so? And I suppose the same apply for Wales and England at the weekend. Two teams reaching the end of very long years. And... Um, but I do think that, you know, in one off cup matches, the Northern Hemisphere cha- teams still have a chance. They proved that in 07. When South Africa and Australia both went out in the quarterfinal stages, or sorry, um, Australia went out to England rather, and the All Blacks went out to France in the quarterfinal stages. And I do think that, you know, this is a reminder that while the gap remains, um, I think since 2007 there's been something like 18 wins and well over 100 games between the Six Nations and the Big Three. So it's still a small return. But when it comes to one off knockout games, they do have a chance. If you take New Zealand out of it,
3: would you? Place the likes of Ireland Wales, England, France on, on a similar
1: plane to South Africa now and Australia is there anything between the two? Well I think the certainly for me the November internationals would have shown that just would have highlighted that the teams are on different stages of cycle like Ireland and now have a year and a half under Joe Schmidt versus Australia had three weeks or three days under Michael Cheka so you can see that there, there's a lot of Development to do under various coaches, and even South Africa under Myers. His, his, uh, he'd obviously had a good run in in the championship coming into this tour. But you know, there's been question marks about his selection policies and taking, you know, taking a lot of the older guys. You know, on board like the boat both and Matt Field, and Schalk and all these guys back in. So, I think you can just see that that um, each team is in a different stage of, of 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 kind of their their evolution, really, and where, and where and, or the, sorry, their development, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, uh, you, taking New Zealand out of it, are they? You know, uh, is there very little between them? I think there is increasingly. I think, yeah, certainly it's it's probably one of the closest autumns I've had. But I've seen, one thing that I, I do think is England, um, watching England against Australia, just reminded how difficult they're going to be in the World Cup because they're playing at home. Um, they have, you know, a big four-pack, probably four or five more guys to come back into the squad that are, aren't available. And, uh, you know, they're probably, even though even though Ireland probably had a better November than I still think they're going to be very very strong.
3: Where would you rank Ireland then? There was a big
5: deal made of this when we reached third in the world.
3: If you were to put a number on the Irish team at the moment, Jerry. In terms of world ranking. Yeah.
5: Well, I suppose it's a complicated enough system that doesn't lie too much. Ireland are European champions. They only lost one game. Um but then if you if you really analyse the margins are so small that it doesn't mean a hell of a lot at number one. And two, if they are third it's by a very small margin that could easily be overturned. You could you could drop to sixth, seventh, eighth very quickly in the world rankings there's so little there's so little between the top. So realistically
1: we put them around fourth or fifth?
5: I would say third at the moment is fine given the European champions.
1: Like I think they 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 certainly earn to be third at the moment, Mm, you know given the the November they had and the six nations they had. I
5: guess the difference between
1: world rankings and then
3: how you take that into a World Cup, which is what we've we've Mm. worried about before. Exactly. But uh, we'll see, we'll see that I wouldn't goes. be reading too like. I don't think they're going to get too carried away, but um, you know it's a long way to go between now the World Cup. Does the international success, what happens with the Irish team, feed into the problems as now we've seen? We, we're going to see all the international players being brought back in. Mm. Oh, well, they'll all be back in by next weekend for the Champions Cup games.
1: Yeah, it does. I think the yes is the answer to that. I think if you look back, um, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, um, you know, all two the through the two thousands when Munster were winning and doing very well in the Heineken Cup, Ireland were. You know, always there, thereabouts, um, and that continued on. Then, when when Leinster were on top in Europe, you know, Ireland won the you know they won the Grand Slam, and you know they were. Uh, I think it's always built on the back of. I th- certainly think Ireland's success is being built on the back of provinces, and then it does transfer back. So I do think when you know the guys come back into camp, it will give everyone a bit of a lift. I think that the teams will get a bit of a, a bump. Yeah, uh, it's just. Uh-
2: I'm interested in how that actually works in reality yeah. because all of the stand-in players would have got yeah. three or four weeks of game time under their belt, would probably be feeling pretty good about themselves and then back come the internationals mm. and they have to, to make way again. I mean, it, it does seem kind of weird that, that, that they would be you know, willing to just kind of welcome them back in with, with open arms in yeah. that sort of situation. Well, I
1: don't think anyone is ever happy about losing their position. Um, I think though, guys have different expectations and different goals uh, depending on where you are in your career and, uh, you know, if you are coming back from an injury or or you're a young player versus an experienced player. I think that that for some guys, a goal will have been reached if they have got a lot of game time in the window when the internationals were away and made the best of that time and have now put themselves in a position to either be there or thereabouts or an injury away from selection. And maybe they weren't in that before. You know, it's never... It's never an easy dynamic when guys slot straight back in and being away, but it's just the way it's always been and uh, players i won't say players accept it because that means they accept not being picked but they it's it's just it's part of the team dynamic um and players are used to the way used to to to, to coaches and teams and their lot as a professional player that happening that's just what's always happened i'm not i'm not saying they accept it but um, they, uh, they're. I suppose they're used to it. That's know? also yeah. up
3: to coaching teams, I guess, as well. Like you're saying, to make sure that each individual player knows mm. that they've done that they've they've hit their targets, whatever they are. Yeah. There's th- a
2: hierarchy kind of beyond just the first 15 that yeah. people are trying to move up constantly. And there as well. w- there,
1: there is usually always an example of, of of some guys who do very well in that window and remain in the side. Like there'll always be one or two guys who might actually just dis- who might displace a guy coming back or a guy is injured now, so he remains on the side you know so it's really about like rugby certainly professional is about taking your chance when you when you get it um, and if you're a a junior player uh, or let's say a young player in a squad or maybe a fringe player you have to wait a long time to get your chance but when you get your chance you have to take it um, and that's what players are, are continually trying to focus on. Biding their time, biding their time, get the chance and make the most of it. And then after that, it's up to the coach. The coach turns around and says, you know, this guy's got 60 caps, he's Ireland's captain, you know, he's, a, he's our place here, he needs to play. But, you know you've really impressed and you know you're going to be on the bench or you've you know you've jumped from maybe 3 to 2 um, you know that's the sort of progress the players want to see and and it's good a good coach manages that
5: Dominic Ryan be a classic case of that this season maybe? I think so yeah I think Dominic <coughs> Ryan's a
1: really good example of that now he's a guy who's been on the fringe for a long time but he through injuries and guys not been available he's come in and he's taken his chance and he will be there thereabouts to say for selection for for uh, for Harlequins if not if not playing. Oh he has to be. Yeah. I would
5: have thought even if Shane Jennings was to Mark right. Roach. Yeah, yeah you're Brian right. Would have to start. Yeah, you're uh, right. Yeah. yeah. So He's made that clear himself
3: I think in interviews he said listen I, I feel like I'm in the team now and I, I should be playing which is what you probably want from from most players anyway but Munster face this issue now of uh, trying to integrate the players back into the system Jerry into the Munster uh, squad because they've got a lot more guys involved in than than were in the Six mm. Nations anyway. Yeah, it's actually easy to forget there were grumblings about there being a bit of a Leinster bias in Joe Schmidt's uh Joe yeah. Schmidt's thinking it doesn't seem to be there now and uh, is that an indication though of what of where, where the Munster team are getting to that they are getting the players representing them again representing I, again?
5: I think it does actually I mean this time last year, uh, Munster only had three players in the squad and they were the three you'd have to have in there, Conor Murray, Paul O'Connell and Peter O'Mahony. I think in the, in the last uh, two the game, the major games in November, they had eight there. M- m- a few of them on the bench, but guys like Zebo and Tommy O'Donnell and others have broken through, Dave Cacoyne, um Dave Foley and I think there's an element of A, Joe Schmidt becoming more aware of their abilities and realising the work ethic they can bring to their game and also the Munster players becoming more aware of what Joe Schmidt demands of them. And I think It's very much a stated ambition of Anthony Foley that this was what they had to do. You know, they could stop grumbling and just get more players into the squad. That's been the old Munster way. They perform collectively and they get the rewards individually by more call-ups to the squad. And I think this has happened. And I think Ireland have a better squad as a result of this for a greater Munster input into it. Um, Also has possibly suffered in part through injury. But yeah, Munster's involved, and I think that will permeate back into the Munster squad. I think that'll be a good thing for them, um, being exposed more to November test rugby against the likes of South Africa and Australia has to be good for them. And I think Munster benefit is a kind of a two way street, like Dennis was talking about earlier. This is an example of Munster being for the benefit of Team Ireland and Ireland f- feeding back into Munster. I think it will help. them. Yeah, they've just
3: we uh, just about got it got home against Ulster at the weekend. They've t- the back to back games against Claremont coming up. Dennis, how well set are they for that? Given the early one or two early difficulties for Foley.
1: I think they're very well said. I think, you know, they've they've won what is last the last seven games? Seven yeah. Seven in a row. Um uh I think you know, the the the, the, the problems at the start of the year. Mirrored mirrored, I suppose maybe Joe Schmidt start at the start of Leinster, he lost a lot of games and you know, a lot of grumblings at the start and, and I think it was inevitable as well for Anthony Foley, you know, in, in true Irish fashion everyone's go Well no, you wanted the job now, so you've got it, so you know, you you know all this kinda this way, you know, people kinda well, you know, it's not Not that easy. Not eh? that easy, after all, is it? You know. So, but uh, you know, Anthony just kind of kept his head down, and obviously, he's had a plan to where he wants to take the team. And is there a bit of that in Ireland? Do you think, as in one of our own,
3: puts his head above the parapet, but wants the job? I think
1: there was certainly elements of that at the start of the reaction. You know, people. You know, you're you're not you're you're not an overnight you're not success immediately. So therefore, you know, maybe maybe you're not up to the job. You know, this kind of mentality. Um, But you know, it's a very long game. that's, that's the coaches have to play. They have to build for three years. You know they're how hard to do a job over two or three years. Um, but the important thing for from a Munster perspective is that they kept winning um, while their players are away. You know, mm. and they and that would have been a big goal to them. You know, after the the first round of European games, um, when the lads went off to November, uh, went off to the Irish camp in November. Just you know, the the squad would have got together and said, okay, by the time these guys come back, we want to be in exactly the same position or better than they were when the left. So, you know, there's 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 always an accepted um grudge that player that the squad builds on. you know, we don't want to be the guys that, you know, just because our you know top guys went off, that everything fell apart as soon as they left, and we need them to come back and save the day. The guys who remain behind always want to be motivated by by setting themselves a goal of saying when when these guys come back We'd be in a better position or equal position to where they were, and they left. And that's that in itself as a goal that has been reached by the squad, and that'll make Anthony Foley very happy. Yeah, and they could uh, well, potentially almost put Claremont
3: out with a win at home this weekend, or certainly put them under a little bit of pressure, Jerry.
5: I wouldn't think that would actually necessarily apply. If, if even if Munster won, with uh, Claremont still have the home games come afterwards, I wouldn't rule Claremont out. It could be that a team wins this group with four wins out of six, um, and to, to degree the results, Munster have only done what they would have had to have done to remain in content. They had to be leading the pool at this stage, given the way the fixtures evolved, given the way Saracens were playing against Clermont. And in actual fact, the way Saracens and Clermont both shared bonus points possibly isn't favourable towards Munster, the way it's panned out. So I think even if Munster win, they're, I don't think that knocks Clermont out of it, because they've got two of the last three of them. They could win their last three games, Clermont, and we know they're the kind of team that can score tries. They can possibly chase bonus points, offensive bonus points, better than any other team in this group, and certainly better than Munster. That's their, that's their nature. Um... Claremont are not; they're changed. Uh, Camille Lopez has made a big difference to them. Instead of Brock James, they're they're still the same force they've been in recent years. They were top of the table up until the weekend when they lost away to Toulon in the big match. They're second point behind Toulon. They've lost that um, that impregnable fortress feeling at home. The, the near eighty match unbeaten run they had came to an end in the uh, in the barrage in the quarterfinals last year at home to Castres, and they were beaten at home earlier this season by Montpellier. But I think they won seven of their first eight, and they've been going very well domestically um, and they are a massive threat in in, in what is still the most difficult group and three three heavyweight contenders as befits three semi-finals in each of the last two years. So I think Munster have to win again at the weekend just just to remain in, comp- in competition in this group. What about Leinster? The group is looking, I guess, relatively straightforward
3: as they go, but with the injuries and with the um, uh, uh, the lack of any spark to their play at the weekend, would you be concerned with these? the Harlequins at ninth, I think, at the moment in the in the Premiership? Yeah,
5: well, Harlequins are struggling themselves. They've yeah. lost five out of nine and they lost again at the weekend, lost their last couple. They're well, I think they're fourth from bottom. It looks like Conor Shea, I always felt that the were punching a little bit above their weight, both in terms of the physical power they brought to games on the pitch and in terms of financial clout, particularly now with clubs like Bath and Sale and more money coming into them. and They're struggling to keep pace now at the top of the table with the Northamptons and Baths and Leicesters and so forth of this world. Um, and they're struggling a little bit. So it looks again like, by comparison to Munster, Leinster got a reasonably favourable draw. Yeah, it was, it was like watching paint dry, the Osprey's game. And it's not the first time you've said that about Leinster this season. Um, this is a
3: particularly extreme example of it. Though. was, yeah,
5: very attritional, very dull, a lot of just taking the ball into contact, very little exploration of space, very little variation in play. They look like they need a spark. They really look like, you think back to this weekend last year, coming out of the November tests, they produced their high point away to Northampton. And I'm thinking, is there any chance this could happen again? You know what I mean? That so many of their players being exposed to test rugby for the, the November window, coming back into Leinster, picking it up again and just going for it in the Heineken Cup. And two big key differences, of course. A, Madigan was playing out half that night in Franklin's Gardens and B, Brian O'Driscoll had a cracking game that night. Neither. It doesn't look like he's going to go with Madigan at 10. You would have thought that was the chance to do it last weekend. And it's a bit disappointing he hasn't because Madigan just looks sharper than Gopper at the moment. And um, but again, I suppose you have to you have to cut them some slack, Dennis, don't you? That, that match at the end of the November window before returning to Europe, with so many changes, mm, yeah. it's hard to click in a night like that. It is. And again, you know they will want to have
1: have come out of the that window of of, of November of you know in, in improving their their standing in the table, which they are. They're mm. higher up the table they were going in. Um, obviously, they drew Treviso, which is you know which they would have targeted that as a way win. But you know. The, <laughs> can they get the bounce the kind of boomerang effect from the November internationals I I certainly think they'll um, I certainly think they'll step up their performance Uh, I think the weekend's performance was you know as I said it was all about the win probably from their perspective but you know it was a weak Osprey side Mm, very very weak Osprey side 18, 19 players 18 players and um, and Leinster really struggled to to put them away and Mm. you know the the, the, the big the the thing I see more from Leinsters play this, this year is just their their Lack of—they're um, just not as clinical when they get in the opposition twenty-two. When they really need to put the pressure on and come away at points, they—you know—they just don't have the same um, level of of uh, concentration in that area that I think they need. That, that I think they either had even last season or that they need this year. But I do think they will actually get a bit of a bounce from. I think they get a significant bounce actually coming out mm. of um, November. I think they have a lot of guys coming back from the squad. Uh, you know that'll lift the whole squad. They'll get their European Cup. Heads on, yeah. and they'll want to um, live up to their uh, billing as one of Europe's top teams, and they'll want to put in a performance, and they'll want to play as good as they want to take the sort of form that they showed for Ireland into mm. uh, you know and, and and individually and collectively show that same sort of form on the big European stage. But was, yeah. you know, it is a it, it it does seem like a bit of a. A bigger leap than you would think it's going to be. Well, I'm
3: surprised what you said there about just about concentration levels mm. in attack, because I would have thought that's the kind of thing that's drummed into these guys mm. uh, at the professional end of things, and th- that's exactly the kind of stuff that should be coming from the training ground onto the field.
1: Well, it is, but you know, it's it's um, it's, it's, it's an individual thing. It's 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 you know, the co- coaches can only coaches can only make players. Um, I think in certain ways you know it's rugby is a game of of decisions it 's a game of decisions under pressure um when to give the pass when not to give the pass you know especially especially as you get into that you know that green zone as it 's called when you 're in attack um of of pushing the extra pass or presenting the ball in a certain way you know it's real it's really um an, a a team's ability to make those right decisions is is the difference between scoring the points or knocking on or you know just l- that opportunity just just slipping away and um it's it's uh, it is drummed in on the training pitch, but it is very much an individual player. You know, it's, it's habits, but it's also their 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 concentration in, at that key moment, and you know that's 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 the difference between a really good team and a, a world class team.
3: Does Matt O'Connor need to be worried about how he wins matches? I mean, could he argue at the weekend? Look, we've a lot of injuries as well as the Ospreys, and we won the game and we are heading into the Champions Cup games on the back of a victory. Is it is it is it a
5: Leinster thing? This this whole idea that Leinster it is a bit a of a Leinster way? thing for sure. You know, entertain us. They have been always the great entertainers, and you know, Dennis's try there, way to Toulouse in the quarterfinal. You know what I mean? When Felipe runs the ball from their own twenty-two, that's symptomatic of what Leinster used to represent. And it's, Leinster fans have been a, quite to a degree spoiled um, throughout the last ten years, much of the professional year in terms of the quality of the finishing they've had and some of the tries they've scored. I do think there is an element of that. Yeah, I mean, they are a capital city club and it tends to go with the terrain of a capital city club. Start from say, Racing Metro, Auckland Blues, you know, New, S- New South Wales, Warriors, they tend they tend to have to be entertaining as well. It's the nature of the public that supports them. I think when it comes to European rugby, less so. Um, I was I mean, I think they played very well against Wasp to come back from the hole they were in and there was a very good, strong second-half performance and it was a decent enough win in the end. I think when they went away to uh, Castra, and never looked like scoring a try and were quite happy to just play for penalties and come through scoring 21 points three in Madigan. Um, it was surprising to me how many Leinster fans were quite content coming home. A win in France is a win in France. Even though Castor are now bottom of the table, lost again at home at the weekend to Racing. You could argue that, you know, that's been put into perspective by results before and since. I think when it comes to Europe, if if Leinster won away to Harlequins on, in the Stoop with just three pointers through Ian Madigan or whomever, I think again most Leinster fans will be happy, and I think Leinster themselves will be happy. Yeah, definitely. I, I certainly think getting
1: you know getting back into European rugby, it'll be about the win. And you know, if you think about the 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 the, the last big European match over there, the the, the famous. Oh no, yes, six-five job. That was so six-five job. You know, it wasn't
5: that, the, the, one of the turning points in Leinster, and history. one of the turning points in
1: thing. It wasn't a trifest, fest, um, but there was all. You know, the, 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 there's always been a um, there's always been a uh, a feeling for Leinster in recent years is that when they get into that zone, that they come away with points. And the the problem becomes for Leinster is that if you get out of the habit of doing that, you can't turn that on in the big game. So in other words, if you're not, if they're not. Having that same level of precision week in week out in the um, in the Guinness Pro 12, when they get into those tight situations in in the European matches, and they you know they find themselves in that in that point, part of the field where they have to come out with points. If they can't pick it up because they're not doing it week in week out, that's that's when. Uh, I wouldn't say the chickens come home to roost, but that's when you, know, you, you, you see the difference between so the more, two leagues.
3: it's more about pre- precision and concentration for you as opposed to an expectation. Would the squad feel that they're supposed to win in a certain way playing for Leinster, do you think? I,
1: I don't know. I think they're far removed from the perceptions of, of what people think they it's should be doing. What their coaches want. They have a very clear... You know there's, there's no ambiguity, I don't think, with the, the lads walking out into the pitch going, well, I'm not really sure what, what the way we're playing is. They know exactly what they're supposed to be doing in different parts of the game. And just because Joe Public doesn't like you know, wants to see it a different way, that's just the, the that's just the way they're playing at the moment and 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 you've got to say they're, they're they've won their two opening games you know they're they've moved up on the tables in the, since November with a lot of guys away um and they're actually sitting sitting pretty I think really for uh, launching the, the the critical back-to-back fixtures which as everyone says you know the 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 warm phase you don't win the European Cup in, in uh,
5: December, 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 or you can certainly lose, lose it, it. You know? and they're unbeaten in six themselves yeah. since that monster defeat. So, yeah, you know, it's just it, it's it's. Um
1: if we want to see more tries, that's, that's, yeah, we want to see them fling the ball. That's basically the curl yeah. of the entire argument. It's not. It's not based on any. You know. Uh, you know. We're not really looking at and saying, well, you know, they're not doing this or doing that. It's just you know, people just want to get excited more. You know, co- you've got yeah. to come
5: some slack. I mean, like Brian O'Driscoll's retired, Johnny Sexton, Johnny Sexton's left for the last two seasons, and they've had a welter of injuries, particularly in the backline, and a lot of wieners down injured and so forth. So you have to cut them some slack. There's a lot of part. injuries actually coming into this weekend. They have had a very, they have
1: had a lot of guys. Mm. Um, Injured uh, and continue to get injured, and
5: so they just any team in the world of like Miss Keen Healy and yeah. Sean O'Brien as well. You know, you get a lot yeah. of your goal forward you mentioned, yeah. but those yeah. kind of players.
1: Yeah, you, you've, you've, I've rarely felt felt from Leinster this year that this is, you know, this. I'm seeing their their top team. No, they, they just no, haven't been so. able to do that. No. You know, at any stage. So, hopefully, this will be the this from a Leinster's perspective. Hopefully, this will be a really. Um, you know, a, a a two game, you know, back to back where they really kind of kick on and they're and they're, they
5: they they really perform like the like the like the club they are. And with the, the way the fixtures and results have fallen, win these two and they're absolutely in command of this pool. You've yep. got one foot in the quarters. Just last year,
3: well, Ulster are in big trouble. Obviously, they've got the Scarlets in their next couple of games. But just a word on Connacht, mm. who don't have European or don't have Champions Cup rugby to concentrate on this year, Jerry, and they're going. Oh, they had a good win at the weekend in the league
5: yeah. and Mils Malina looked like he's slotted in nicely yeah. there. Pretty good vibes around Galway? Really good vibes and it was great to see the attendance of the last couple of home games. And it just shows you, if you get a couple of stellar names in the West, as well as any of the other provinces, they will come out and support you in their thousands. You're and you're winning, Jerry, though. So and you're winning as well. Like yeah, sure. they, They've won, yeah. All, their games. So they've they've won really, all their games at home. Right? Yeah, they've been really competitive. most competitive contest we've seen in the Pro mm. 12 in the league, which is great to see. It's good for the league. It's good for Irish rugby. And um, the only point, pity from their point of view, is they're not in the European Cup, number one. But the Challenge Cup, by dint of the new ruling whereby the winners do not qualify for the uh, European Cup the following season, it really is just a tournament, a shield to, to win. And I think as the season progresses, they're going to prioritise the Pro 12 more and more and more because it's got so much more currency for them. I mean, yeah. this is their route into the European Cup.
1: Yeah, like I watched the, watch the the whole game against the Scarlets, and um, as you say, the crowd is is... It's great to see the increasing numbers. And, and like, Paddock are no different to any other uh, provincial size in that regard. You know, more players, you know, people come to see winning teams. It's happened for Leicester, happened for Munster. You know, you build a crowd, doesn't, you know, everyone... And everyone's a diehard from day one, you know. Yeah. People and then they start grumbling the when you don't get tries. <laughs> exactly. I mean, yeah, exactly. And people want to see a team win. One so to ten years from now, college fans. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you know, and that's the thing. And and the, and they've so they've built a really good. Um, so they're obviously building their crown based on on winning uh, on a weekend week out basis. But um, uh, you know, they're they're. Like, I, I thought their performance against the Scarlets at the weekend was was was. Um, was very strong. They, they scored very a great tries well. Yeah, you know, was, they're, yeah they're, they're,
2: that thing that we that's been lacking in college, yeah. that ability to win tight games. Yeah,
1: yeah. and far uh, less mistakes, far less, far more assured, and all of a sudden it becomes a you know people are, you know, it becomes a very grand that 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 people start thinking well, it's very hard to win here now,
5: and that changed even the referees' perception, everybody's perception, everyone's perception. Yeah. So so it's uh it was
1: good, you know it it, it was contrasted. I was I was sad to see. The number of empty seats in the in the Munster Ulster games. Yes, you know the two ends of the ground. Like, they the were ground. like Welsh no, that, grounds. Yeah, it was just it's 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 just it's sad to see that because obviously two two top Irish provinces uh, going head to head a week out before Europe, you would just have expected that mm-hmm. that would have been you know people back on board. It's just it's a sign of the times, but it's sad to see that you know.
3: All right, we'll leave it at that. Listen, Dennis, Jerry, brilliant. Thank you. Cheers. <laughs>
2: the final and on in again.
4: Andi okay.
2: A. Oh, what about that? Send him off. Send him it- off.
3: Murphy, happy to go along with the earlier, the stated ranking of Ireland in the world, number three.
2: Yeah, I, was, it, I kind of think it's a different ranking, though. Say if you're looking ahead to a World Cup, right? We're, and we're, say, we're not
3: the third most likely team to win the World Cup. I don't exactly think you can say we are. Yeah,
2: I don't think we are either. Um, now, we might be the third best team in the world at the moment, but whether we can actually... We have quite a long way to go to bridge the gap between our previous performances at World Cups mm. and winning the thing yeah. I mean that's that that's quite we've we've got a few steps to go there I'm kind of thinking of the Offaly football team from the 1980s uh, who reached the Leinster final in 1979 uh, and then uh, reached a, a, a Leinster semi-final in yeah 1979 won it in 1980 uh, got to an London semi-final lost it in 1981 and then got to an Ireland final and won it in 82 I mean there has to be a progression of performance there and I just don't think that We've kind of, you know, yeah. we we've built that up in previous years. Now we might be the third best team in the world at the moment, but I'm going to say there are four teams more likely to win the World uh, Cup uh, than us. You're saying, actually, probably five. You're adding England now. England have just popped back in. England, back in no, no, it was actually France. I forgot about there. Yeah, I,
4: well, there's five teams who are more likely to win the World Cup than us.
3: Yeah. Oh, the five teams would
4: possibly six if you include Wales.
3: I'm not going to include Wales as time But no. I'm watching against Australia at the weekend. I always like watching teams who. There's a stereotypical view of how they play a sport, and uh, in the case of England, it's brute force. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a big pack demolishing the scrum of the other team. Yeah, round heads, he round heads. It's funny you say that. The round, the, the most rounded head on the team belongs to Ben Morgan, their number eight. Really? Big bustling number eight. He went over two tries on the back of uh, crushing work by the by the forward unit. <laughs> and Australia, in the meantime, totally outplay, totally outgunned, but yet have these amazing skillful fast backs and are producing these little bits of magic it, here now just to stay in the game.
2: It was the most England-Australia rugby so game terrible. ever played. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> it really was very, very... The it, it, England was,
4: yeah. must be disappointed with their brutal rugby image. Yeah. You know, this sort of total absence of imagination, well, just pure... Yeah.
2: Fop-haired backs followed by <laughs> fat-headed forwards. Wasn't it 1940? And I mean, it's... You know, you can argue argue the point and all the rest, but then you look at the team, and they're all these like gigantic blobs of <laughs> muscle and fat for the first eight numbers, and then nine to fifteen are all really posh looking. You know, Scott
4: Parker haircuts.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's kind of weird. Yeah, Billy Twelve is won't like that much, but. You should see I think you should Google image Billy 12 If you you go back to 91 I think it was either 99 or 91 but one of the times that England beat Australia it would have been 91 when when Australia beat England in the World Cup final I'm almost certain uh, uh, David Campisi led this media barrage before the game probably uh, egged on by by teammates and coaches and they were essentially saying look England haven't got the balls to stand toe-to-toe and play rugby against us you know all they're going to do is uh, scrummage their way to victory Who wants to win like that? Yeah, and then suddenly England start trying to flick the ball around. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Thank you very I love, much. I love that. Yeah, and we're beating nice uh, uh, him in the work of all right, coming up in second. Oh, you were looking at Billy twelve three there.
4: Yeah, I mean, what am I supposed to do? He reminds me a bit of Lucas Lever. Imagine Lucas Lever was about forty kilos. Maybe of the extra maybe, the, muscle.
2: maybe the, the the picture you're looking at isn't particularly fop haired, but believe me, Ken, he's an extremely foppy man. coming up in man.
3: second captain's football. <laughs>
1: That's yeah. <laughs> They have asked for that, really.
4: Well, oh, you can laugh. the World Cup.
1: I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You well, don't know what
4: you're talking about. What well, did you want? Know like to it. stay
1: alive. Oh, I stay it's it's later. Later. I'd
4: say it to you, face. I'll say it to now. You mean, I'm, I'm down Swansfield,
3: and we'll see them, What you are doing down here, you show me, man?
4: <laughs> oh, and we were talking recently about how the Premier League was pretty had pretty much disgraced itself this year. Oh yeah. Uh, It was essentially Mm. everyone was just there with their head in their hands. Joe Brawley sniggering away. Would you look at this?
2: The chickens have come home to race. Yeah,
4: this soulless corporation of the Premier League. And the the actual sporting element has completely died off. To be honest, not a lot of evidence against that point of view (laughs) uh, based on uh, recent games. We are going to talk a little bit about that. Sounds good. <laughs> and this week, <laughs> where
2: Manchester City and Man United have finally shown championship form.
4: Yeah, Chelsea Man- faltering. The Manchester the clubs uh, managed to um, easily defeat their opponents. and uh, It's squeaky bum time in the John- Premier League. John O'Shea against Diego Costa it was actually the battle of the weekend. It was fantastic oh, yeah. to watch. O'Shea just beating Diego Costa, um, kicking him and, uh, and mauling him from behind.
3: Well, O'Shea's your classic guy, you have to get angry. And I'm sure Costa got him angry.
4: Well, no. It, the really interesting the thing about this was that O'Shea was clearly doing it deliberately. Because we are okay. Everybody knows what type of a player Diego Costa is. He makes it quite obvious um, in every game. He's he's an aggressive player. He likes to get involved in confrontations with his opponents, and he often wins those confrontations. I mean, you know, the he's actually he seems to have a particular problem with Irish defenders. Come to think of it, because it was Seamus Coleman early on in the season who Costa was insulting after uh, Coleman scored an own goal and when Chelsea beat Everton, and uh, Costa sort of bent down and had a little word, and Coleman sitting there grieving on the ground, and Costa is taunting him. Uh, and Anti-Irish? now irish hmm? anti-Irish. Well, anti-Seamus Coleman and John O'Shea. But anyway, John O'Shea just keeps kicking and beating Costa, so he's getting really angry. The really interesting thing though was that there was there was a point at which O'Shea followed followed Costa out to halfway and. Hacked him down from behind. Did you see it? Not a very nice time. He, he went for the ball. The ball was there. I think. I think. Um, and, but, the, but O'Shea didn't really get any of the ball. He kind of went through, the, went through Costa's leg and knocked him, knocked him down. But Costa, on the ground, then kicks out with both sets of studs at O'Shea. Misses him. Misses his head, which appeared to be the target. But what usually happens in that situation is that the guy who has just had the studs aimed at his face reacts Explosively, you know, he he, he straight up over. Ah, like, oh, what are you trying to do to me? Um, but John O'Shea turned turned tail and ran. Now I say turned tail and ran. It sounds like he was he was running away, but very deliberately turned his back immediately and just ran back to his defensive position, leaving one of his teammates to sort of say, "Oh, what do you think you're doing, Diego Costa? That's not the way to play this game." Uh, and Costa suddenly was he, he was he was kind of at a loss what to do. Hang on a second. I thought we were going to be having a good chest barging confrontation <laughs> here. I thought there was going to be a bit of, uh, you know, mm. I know what you'd to do. Um, but there was nothing. O'Shea I I gave him nothing. Yeah. He just kicked him and then ran away. Kicked him and ran away. And... Uh, it was an, it was a new approach, an approach I haven't seen used yet, and maybe it's an approach we're going to see more of.
3: Luke McManus uh, joins us in studio. Luke uh, has directed a four-part documentary series for TG4. It started last Sunday night, continues over the next. Uh, continued last night, uh, started last night, I should say, and continues over the next few Sundays. Shocked in the raw Sea, which is all about the 2014 Galway races. Luke, how are you? Oh, I'm not too bad on yourself. Not too bad at all. We've had, you, we've had you in before talking about Jump Boys, about Jump Jockeys, a documentary that you did, and Arkel as well. Have those two, did they steal
0: you to take on the beast that is the Galway Races? It's a very strange one, isn't it? I know nothing about horses. I suppose I know a little bit at this stage. I haven't done three projects. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, but it was the same producers and the same kind of setup, and they came back to me um, early summer of last year going, look, you know, this, this Galway Races thing is going to happen. Are you, are you interested? And I'm kind of a film fly guy, you know. Go away in the summer. There's these rolling sort of, uh, you know, bus queue of festivals that cruise through the city on a sea of Guinness, and like uh, I'd always go down for the fly, and the fly was brilliant. There's loads of business gets done, but there's great cracks we had. and it is late nights and all that. And uh, but everyone used to say, "Oh, this is nothing." Wait till you see the races. Wait till you see the races, and I never ever wanted to see the races because <laughs> I was destroyed after me two days at the fly, you know. So there was a bit of trepidation there. It was kind of like. You know, seven days. Like you know, you're down there eight days filming on the banks. You know, the days are long. It's pretty grueling, pretty intense.
3: Yeah, because you're you're filming. You're you're trying to get a lot in here. You're you're filming what goes on at the racecourse, different subsections of the racing world in terms of bookies and and punters and all the rest of it. You're also trying to get the the social element in at night time. So I can only imagine it was uh, it wasn't all uh, glitz and glamour down there
0: for you. No, a, there's a bit of pressure because you're trying to also, apart from anything else, you're doing four half-hour programs in a week, you know, and you can do a certain amount of filming the prep and a certain amount of picking things up afterwards. But it's it's an obdoc. It's got to be about that week. So, say Jump Boys that we shot for nine months, right. you know, on and off to do one hour. And now I'm doing two hours in a week. So, you're kind of, you know, a little bit nervous about that. So, we had four crews at one stage, you know, uh, out and about shooting different aspects of it. It was the first time I'd had that many people mm. kind of working for me and... You know, some really good people, actually. Uh, Colin Barade and Tom Shoya, DV directors, and, and, you know, they were the kind of units. But, no, you're absolutely right. What, what's impressive about Galway is the scale. It's even the duration of a week, seven days, is almost unheard of for a racing festival. The number of people who go... I mean, at, at its height, back in oh five oh six, it was the fourth best attended race meet on the planet. Like, you're looking at a huge... Huge event that impacts on a city in a very fundamental and serious way, and it hooks all these people in, as you say, these publicans, the guards, the taxi drivers, the fashion designers. Um, so, what we we knew we wouldn't get that deep in a week, so we wanted to be broad and get that sense of how it all interconnects and as many different perspectives on the event as possible. And I think we managed to pull that off, you know.
2: So you you had a you you'd never gone been to the Golden Races. You had a perception of what it might be like. How did that tally up to what you actually saw and what we'll see in the in the programmes?
0: It was pretty close. <laughs> it was pretty damn close. I, I think mean,
2: I think it is an event where you get pretty much, you know, you, you know, you buy a ticket, you know, pretty much what you're going to get.
0: Well, I was expecting Glastonbury for cold cheese, and that's basically yeah. what I got. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like, like, but what's interesting. There's a bit of a thing in racing, oh Galway, the racing's not that great really. You know, there's a slight snob factor. It isn't Leppertown or Punchestown or or Cheltenham. Like the races, the big races are handicaps, which means the best horses aren't in those races. So if you're a purist, it might not appeal so much. But some of the most knowledgeable racing people I know love Galway because it's not about being a purist. It's about the summertime. It's about that kind of weird sense of abandon that comes across you when you cross the Shannon in July and you leave behind reality and you go into this other place where rules are made to be bent, if not outright broken, you know? And I think that's the culture of Galway is decadence, abandon, losing the run of yourself a bit, you know? Glastonbury's
3: maybe a fair comparison, not that I've been to Glastonbury, but music festivals in general, another area of life where you... You don't actually have to be yourself. Or maybe you can, you can finally be yourself. Yeah, free normal
2: rules do to apply one way or the other, anyway.
0: Exactly, exactly. I mean, and it's like people got to go with to lose money. They go to other places to try and win money. You know, you almost get a sense that they're deliberately trying to lose money. Yeah, there's not, not many
2: people landing up with 50 quid saying, well, I'll bet my way through the week and that'll be fine. You know, I mean, that's not the, that's not the plan, not, but not for anyone. Definitely not, like,
0: you know. And it is just, you know, the character of it changes as you go through the week. It starts... You know, solidly, it builds to Wednesday. The Galway Plate's a massive race. We, episode three, we've a we've a lot about the plate and about Shane Shorthall, who's a very young jockey who... Well, anyone who follows racing knows how the story ends, but it's still a very interesting story. Then the hurdle and the fourth day, but the fourth day is Ladies' Day, so suddenly you're into that whole crazy universe and, you know, most people there aren't even watching the racing, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. they're kind of on a whole other buzz, you know?
2: Yeah, my, say my dad now, uh, when we live about twenty. 28 miles from gallop city so 25 miles from the from the race course my dad would go on the monday night and that would be a, that would be a big thing say, for people from north gallop we'd go they'd go on the monday night or they'd go on the tuesday and then wednesday and thursday which is ladies day is thursday and that's left completely to the to the day trippers to the lunatics i mean my like money could not drag my father to Ballybride on the Wednesday or the Thursday.
0: The I mean, Thursday is uh, kind of like a deb's. Yeah, it's it, like yeah. being
2: at someone else's deb's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. vast open air deb's.
3: <laughs> does it the Does it feel like a sporting event? Because the way you describe it so far, sport has barely been mentioned. And as you say, the racing purists themselves wouldn't uh, wouldn't see it as as particularly uh, valuable in terms of the racing that goes on there. But yet, um, I mean, there's, there is sport at the centre of it, or is it just an excuse? Is the sport just an excuse for people to gather and get? I,
0: I think it's that thing of different crowds. It's like Murph's dad goes down. He probably does take a bit of an interest in the racing. I'm sure it's a bit of a reunion. You know, there's a lot of people saying, oh, this is like Christmas, you know, people are coming back from Australia for this. Like, it's obviously a bit of a session, but there is also some pretty top-notch racing down there. And you do have your Dermot Wells, you know, who's he's a big character in episode two, probably the most successful trainer in Ireland. I'm not sure ever, but certainly he's got the most wins of any trainer in Ireland. He takes very seriously and he's just like, hugely dominant character down there him and Pat Smull and his jockey but you know it's that thing Monday and Tuesday it's the people from Galway Wednesday, Thursday it's kids on the lash you know then Friday you kind of get into the dubs coming down for the bank holiday and by Sunday they have a sort of family day and it's kind of bouncy castles and they have a mad hat competition and you know it just gets relaxed you know what I mean so there is this kind of multifaceted ever evolving kind of tone to the place which is interesting You too. also mentioned the
3: glory days if you can call them that in around 2005-2006 uh, these were the days I don't know if the Fianna Fáil tent still exists but there used to be one down there and there was a lot of a, a lot of movers and shakers would do their thing down there and use that as a, and was seen as a big part of that era, I guess, in Irish life. That those few days, is there any of that left? Is it a very is it is it a different kind of a setup in twenty fourteen?
0: I suppose one of the things about the whole event was it. I feel racing reflects Irish rural society quite well. You know, it's sort of a microcosm of the hierarchy and the structures you get in sort of country life in Ireland. And as such, because we're basically that sort of society, I think we're fundamentally rural in our culture. Um, and the way we think about the world, it feels like it reflects the country as as, as Mm. a whole. So I think they've had a couple of five really tough years. You know, I think they had that, what you're talking about, that excessive level of spending. They had huge numbers down there. It was just all about ostentation and excess, you know, and if you can imagine, it's the one week of ostentation and excess of the year. But when the whole country was drunk on ostentation and excess, it sort of went through the roof and, you know, there was all those helicopter landings and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then they've had to regroup. So I suppose what we were about this year was, is this the time that the corner's been turned? And is the Galway is on the way back and is the curve turning upwards again? And in a way is the same happening for Ireland we've been through the worst it's starting to feel a bit better now so maybe things are going to get a bit better you know
2: yeah I think that there is um there's kind of a new humility to I was at the races a couple of years ago and I did kind of feel that that there was a sort of a new humility to the thing that maybe wasn't present but I mean we were having a discussion about the go to races before you came in and um uh, and we're we're kind of debating whether you know whether it has a bad reputation on the back of that I think to be honest not a lot of people held that against the Goal of Races necessarily. You know, like the helipads and all the rest of that. Like, I don't think people kind of said, that's the Goal of Races. I mean, I think that was the country
3: and the Goal of Races kind of reflected was that. It was, was bit. A, another place for the top dogs to congratulate each other on how well they were running yeah, the place, I exactly.
2: Guess. And that's what I mean. I don't think that that was... I don't think that the Goal of Races was negatively impacted by that. I mean, the implication was there, but... You know, I, no one holds, holds it against the races for that, I don't think. Maybe maybe, maybe you disagree, I don't know, but...
0: Well, I suppose in a way it, it was a stick f- that certain metropolitan commentators could use to beat a particular type of politics, a particular type of carry-on that they were very against. And I think if you're a Galway person, you have a certain relationship with it. And if you're a Dublin person, yeah. you have a very different one, you know. Um, I mean, for me, as someone who wasn't that into racing... Uh, Back then, I would just would rather, you know, do anything than go to the Galway races, especially for a week. But then when you go, you realise it does have a huge amount of heart and it doesn't matter a lot to the city. And, you know, it's been... I mean, I was doing a little bit of research. The first one was in 1869. 40,000 people showed up to the very first one unexpectedly. And there was so much of a crisis of accommodation in Galway. They had to uh, set up a refugee camp in Air Square to house... Because all the hoteliers just cancelled all their bookings and started having auctions for the hotel rooms. In terms of... Where you left, as I said, the first episode has been on.
3: Um, what, who, who do, you, who are the dominant sort of character characters in it? You mentioned Dermot Weld. It's funny, Sean Brannock is there, kind of arriving as a very gregarious punter, and he's you're, you're following him around. First conversation he has about the first race of the first day. You know, who's your money on? It's like, well, Weld has a good a good on running here. And for all the uh, you know for the lack of in depth knowledge we'd have on on who's going to win Galway races, is it not just a Dermot Weld horse every single time?
0: Last year, I think he won 17 races yeah. out of 35. Like, that is insane. Um, and look, there's people who go to the go races and back weld horses and do nothing else. You Great. know, I mean, that's literally what they do. And they'll be going on a fiver each way. at Like, next week, there's a woman, and she's like, a fiver each way in a weld horse that's like 10 to 11 or something. You know, it's like yeah, an odds-on, yeah, yeah. Like you know. <laughs> and she's like, I'm going to win €6.89 <laughs> if this guy cruises in first. And, but, you know, that's a very typical away yeah. experience, like she's just down from Ghidor, having the crack, and she wouldn't bet from one end of the ear to the other. But she's there, so you have to have a few bets. You yeah, know what I mean, but um, like when we were there, Dermot Weld was given an honorary doctorate by NUI Galway, and he is—I don't know if you've ever met him. Like he's—he's uh, he's actually a really interesting character. Like I was—I went into—I did a long interview with him in his home, and I kind of almost feel like there's a project in him as well. He's right. one of these guys. He's incredibly confident. He's incredibly high achieving. On paper the things he says are sort of nightmarishly egotistical. But he says it with this kind of charming (laughs) twinkle in his eye that you kinda accept it, you know what I mean? Like like he's I think he's one of those guys that no matter what he turned his hand to, you know, he would have been a huge success. Like, you know, he has that kind of air of it just exudes out of every pore. Yeah. Well, Shockton and Rossi, three
3: episodes left the next few Sunday nights, I'm right in saying. Yeah, that's right. So Sunday night's nine thirty
0: and repeated Monday's seven
3: thirty. Perfect. Isn't man it's great to talk to you. Thanks a million. Cheers, guys.
1: So that's the question that's going to be asked, answer tonight, tonight. So now, come here tonight, tonight, into Wexford Park, and they just must produce the goods tonight, tonight. Their team is better set up tonight, tonight. But they just, the bottom line is, Michael, they have to do tonight, tonight.
3: Now, I think have made a massive boo-boo with our matchups, massive boo-boo. Tonight,
1: tonight, 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 tonight,
5: tonight.
3: Murph, as a man who has been there, as, you, as you've stated, what's our conclusion? Every Irish person needs to attend the Galway... It's interesting, even the way um, Luke describes there, Dublin people maybe have a different view of it from Galway. Mm. Everybody from... Every Galway person at least needs to attend the Galway races at once. I think
2: everyone is going to get exactly what they expect from the Galway races. And if that's good news for you, go for it. Mm-hmm. And if it's not good news for you, then stay away. I mean, there's as Luke says there, the perception... Is the reality? There is no. I mean, if if it's seven days of complete, uh, you know, country living hedonism, that's what it is. So I mean, sound appealing, Ken?
4: Yeah, I mean, I've been there, you've, to, you've well, been, not to, not to the actual race. It's just been I've been in Galway when the races have been on. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah. you've been at the races. So you've been at the race. Don't worry about yeah. that, Ken. You've, yeah, you've, you've it's, been there. it's pretty amazing. You know, I mean, it's it's very difficult to to get to the bar or whatever, but I mean, it's it, it is impressive to see a crowd that size. I mean, the streets are just completely packed. You know, you're just sort of, uh, it's it's insane. But yeah, I suppose it was I suppose it was enjoyable enough. Mm, wasn't? Right. I mean, I haven't been back, but uh, I suppose once you've been there once, maybe you've you've seen it. You know what you've it's like. it.
2: Yeah, you've you know you know what you're getting. If about. you like
4: being in huge crowds of people and drinking uh, Guinness out of plastic glasses, then go nuts absolutely have Set a listen to the to
3: Irish Times football podcast a little bit later on today through all the uh, usual means there you can follow us on Twitter at Second Captains and check out secondcaptains.com uh, Murph thank you thank you one
2: thank you Ken thank you, thank you. or answer. I need to go, all good. Uh, I should say sorry
3: thanks for listening we'll chat to you soon <laughs> <laughs> Is that the second time it's gone off they never
5: go home they never go home they never go home those
1: guys